So please let yourself sit in a way that's comfortable. Over the course of this fall, been giving a series of uh, talks on uh, teachings in the Buddhist tradition, which are called the uh, discovery of the perfections, the paramitas, the qualities of Buddha nature that are there within the heart of each one of us, of every being. In this case, it's ten talks on the ten perfections, which include the discovery of inherent generosity, wisdom, compassion, and so forth. Tonight I'd like to speak about the quality of satya, which is the inner power of truthfulness, the seventh of these perfections that we can discover in our own being. The word dharma in Sanskrit or Pali is another word for this quality. And dharma means the truth or the way, the Tao, the way things are. It has other meanings. It can mean the path of practice and so forth. But most fundamentally, the Dharma is the law, the way of things. Over a hundred thousand eons, we told the story in previous weeks, the Buddha was said to have practiced the, or cultivated the development of the heart of integrity and wisdom and energy and compassion. But rather than think of it as eons and eons, one can understand that it's outside of time altogether. And the best way to know these spiritual qualities is to demonstrate them or discover them here and now. Because where else could they actually be but where we are? So the word truth or truthfulness speaks to a quality of presence and openness to what is so. Among the very last words of the Buddha, as the story of his death is told, he said to people, be a lamp, be a light, shine and see what is true for yourself. So the quality of a lamp is like a lamp in a dark place It doesn't matter how long the place has been dark, how long there has been darkness. The moment that the lamp is lit, it shows everything clearly. One of the great Buddhist texts called the Visuddhimagga begins with a question and then spends about 1,000 pages answering the question. The question is in two lines. It says, this world is entangled in a tangle. Who can untangle this tangle? And to discover the truth of how we become entangled and what freedom is, is one purpose of spiritual life. What's interesting if you look at the story of the Buddha Remember, many of these are told as children's stories, as we've spoken about previous weeks, the 500 previous birth stories when the Buddha was an elephant or a parrot or some other creature. It's said the way these stories are told that this being took a vow to become a complete and perfect Buddha. No matter what circumstances would change, that vow remained. And as the stories are told, you look at what the Buddha did in this or that lifetime in these stories. The Buddha did many beautiful things, 
But he also did many unskillful things in these stories, many bad things. But there was one thing that he didn't do. He didn't fool himself. He didn't lie about what he did. He created different kinds of bad situations, created suffering for himself and for others. But never in the course of doing all of that, the one thing that he kept was that he told the truth about it. It is the saving grace if we are to be free or to awaken. Not so much what we do, because we've all done it, probably, everything in some way or other. If not enacted it, we've all thought it or imagined it. And if you haven't, you haven't paid attention yet to your mind. (laughs) But to tell the truth to ourselves, (coughs) to see what is so, this is the symbol of awakening. And it's so simple, this capacity to tell the truth. Krishnamurti puts it this way, When the mind is silent, calm, still, not wanting a single thing, neither grasping nor resisting, then it is possible to see what is true. And it is the truth that liberates, not your efforts to be free. What brings us to freedom is seeing how things are, honestly and clearly and deeply. Now that's pretty tough because we live in a sea of fabrications and falsehoods that is part of the kind of everyday commerce of our culture. And I don't use that word inadvertently. We live in a culture of denial and ambition and addiction, where, as we've talked about, the best adjusted person is neither dead nor quite alive, but somewhere in the middle, a zombie in some way, able to function enough to get things done. This is from John Gatto, who was the New York City Teacher of the Year several years ago, and who got up to receive his award from the mayor in front of a huge, the school board and a huge crowd of teachers and parents and castigated the school board and the mayor for the sole murder of one million black and Latino children. He said in his speech, think of the things that are killing us as a nation, drugs, brainless competition, recreational sex, the pornography of violence, gambling, alcohol, and the worst pornography of all, lives devoted to buying and getting things, accumulation as if it would give meaning to life. All are simply addictions of dependent or fearful personalities, and that is what our brand of schooling is now inevitably producing. The children I teach become indifferent to the adult world, which defies the experience of thousands of years before. A close study of what big people were up to used to be the most important occupation of youth, but nobody wants to grow up these days, and who can blame them? (laughs) The children I teach have lost most of their curiosity and cannot concentrate long. They have a poor sense of the future. The children I teach are dependent, passive, 18,000 hours of watching television. The children I teach are materialistic, following the lead of the school teachers who materialistically grade everything, and the advertisements who offer everything in the world for sale. The children I teach are uneasy with intimacy or candor. They're cruel to each other. They lack compassion for misfortune. They laugh at weakness. What are we to do? pretty painful, isn't it? Or Wendell Berry, 
who describes the modern society in another fashion. Speaking of unlimited growth, the pet idea of the society that unlimited economic growth can be accomplished within limited space, with limited materials, and limited intelligence. This only shows the unlimited self-confidence of great minds. That unlimited economic growth implies unlimited consumption, which in turn implies unlimited pride, covetousness, lust, anger, gluttony, envy, and sloth only makes the prospect even more unlimited. Or look at our food system, one of my favorites. The food system we live in is grounded in the following principles. Food is important mainly as an article of international trade. Two, it doesn't matter what happens to farmers. Three, it doesn't matter what happens to the land. Four, agriculture has nothing much to do with the environment. Five, there will always be plenty of food, for if the farmers don't grow it from the soil, scientists will invent it. (laughs) Six, there's no connection between food and health. People are fed by the food industry, which pays no attention to health, and healed by the health industry, which pays no attention to food. (laughs) It follows, seven, that there's no connection between healing and health. Hospitals customarily feed their patients poor quality, awful-tasting, factory-made, expensive food and keep them awake all night with various expensive machines. There seems to be only a connection between money and health. And this isn't news to us, really, but it kind of goes underground because we're all so busy trying to make it in this system. But we see it on the news, you know, what used to be called the War Department is called the Defense Department. And we have peacekeeper missiles, and that's how it is, isn't it? But what are we teaching our children when we allow this? I mean, look at the political campaign that just finished and say, well, it's, it's not just America. The Soviet Union is the same thing. In 1988, the Soviet Union, saying their history textbooks had taught generations of Soviet children lies that poisoned their minds, announced at the end of the school year that it canceled final history exams for 55 million students. Reporting the cancellation, the government newspaper Svestia said the extraordinary decision was intended to end the passing of lies from generation to generation. Imagine a society even admitting that. The guilt of those who deluded one generation after another is immeasurable. Today we are reaping the bitter fruits of our own moral laxity. We are paying for giving silent approval of everything that now brings the blush of shame to our faces and about which we do not know how to answer our children honestly. So we're really talking about some of the kinds of suffering of the modern world in which we don't see the truth or speak the truth in public ways often. And it becomes then internalized for us. These are the letters, true excerpts from letters sent to an insurance company on an accident reporting form. Coming home, I drove into the wrong house and collided with a tree I don't have. Or, I collided with a stationary truck coming the other way. A pedestrian hit me and went under my car. The guy was all over the road. I had to swerve a number of times before I hit him. I pulled away from the side of the road, glanced at my mother-in-law, and headed over the embankment. I had been driving for 40 years when I fell asleep at the wheel and had an accident. My car was legally parked as it backed into the other vehicle. An invisible car came out of nowhere, struck my car, and vanished. The telephone pole was approaching. I was attempting to swerve out of its way when it struck the front end of my car. I was sure the old fellow would never make it to the other side of the road when I struck him. (laughs) 
The teachings of the Buddha are based on seeing things as they are. In fact, the Buddha said over and over again, you are right to question, to question me, to question the teachings, to question until you see for yourself what is so. Last week was Veterans Day, remember? We talked about it last Monday. To honor those who fought, often very valiantly, for the love of their country or for values, to stop totalitarianism, for values that they believed in. But there isn't so much truth told about war either, about the fact that we're the number one weapons exporting country in the face of the earth. Do you hear on the radio this week the, the arms deal that's being made for the new generation of fighter planes, $219 billion um, that's coming up? And that would pay for a lot of food and schooling you know, and uh, health care, not just for us but for the world. Surgical strikes. Remember the, the clean war against Iraq where bodies were just bulldozed in the trenches. It was pretty easy. You didn't have to look at them. Since boys are taught not to cry, men must learn to weep. That's from Sam Keen in his book about war. And I don't mean to dishonor veterans. I think that it was probably one of the most important and terrible and moving and learning experiences for those who went to war, but to honor them simply by telling the truth. It's terrible. So truthfulness is what brings us freedom. Remember, I like to read from children's letters to God. Dear God, how come you did all those miracles in the old days and don't do any now? <laughs> See more. Or, dear God, I wish there wasn't no such thing of sin. I wish there wasn't no such thing of war either, Timothy. Dear God, I want to be just like my daddy when I get big, but not with so much hair all over. Dear God, maybe Cain and Abel wouldn't kill each other so much if they had their own rooms. It, wor <laughs> it works with my brother, Larry. Dear God, I'm the only one in my class who is Chinese. They all say that you are American. What are you? Could you be Chinese too? Your friend, Kim. Can we look and see, really with new eyes, what is true of this world? It was his power to tell the truth that made the Buddha such an extraordinary teacher. The lion's roar of his speech. And often what he said was so simple. Speak or act with an impure mind and trouble will follow you as the wheel follows the ox that draws the cart. Speak or act with a pure heart and happiness will follow you as closely as your shadow, unshakable. However many holy words you read, however many you speak, what good will they do you if you do not act upon them? Are you a shepherd who counts another man's sheep, never sharing the way? Read as few words as you like and speak fewer, but act upon the law, what you know in your heart. Give up the old ways, enmity, folly, greed. Know the truth and find peace in the world. Then share the way with others. Your worst enemy cannot harm you as much as your own thoughts, unguarded, uncared for. But once mastered, no one can help you as much as your own heart and mind, not even your mother or father. So simple to pay attention. 
one of the famous discourses of the Buddha was the fire sermon where he gathered people together on a hill in Rajgir with a thousand monks and said, my friends, everything is burning. And how is everything burning, my friends? The eye is burning, the ears are burning, the nose, the tongue, the body and mind are burning. With what fires are they burning? They burn with the fires of greed and grasping, with the fires of anger and hatred, with the fires of ignorance. The eye, ear, nose, tongue, and body are burning with grasping, with hatred, with ignorance. Considering this, my friends, a wise disciple becomes weary of this burning, releases the eye, the ear, the nose, the tongue, the body from grasping and aversion, from ignorance, finds peace. Relinquishing, seeing this, there is liberation, entering that which is peaceful, beyond the changing conditions of life. (coughs) He gave this talk, the fire sermon, and it said afterward that all thousand monks who were sitting with him had their inner eye of wisdom opened and were enlightened, and innumerable and countless angels and devas as well smiled and were awakened let go of all the things that they clung to, found an inner freedom. Sometimes it's not what we want to hear. This is Rumi. He writes, Your old grandmother says, Maybe you shouldn't go to school. You look a little bit pale. Run when you hear that. Your father's stern slaps would be better. said, We've been so busy accumulating solace, make us afraid of how lost we can be. Pray for a tough instructor to hear and act and stay with you. See what is true completely. Rumi's advice. Your old grandmother says, maybe you shouldn't go to school. You look a little pale this morning. Run when you hear that. My own teacher, Ajahn Chah, was very honest. It was part of the most refreshing quality about him. One day a very wealthy man came who was retired, and kind of sauntered into the monastery, bowed, sat down with the teacher and said, I'm retired, I made all this money, and I'm trying to think about what to do with it, whether to build schools or hospitals or give it to the monks, maybe to give it to a monastery like yours. But you could tell as he spoke he was really proud of what he had and what he was going to do. Ajahn Chah looked at him and said, I'll tell you what to do with it. The man said, you will. He said, yeah, I think, you know, that big bridge that you came over when you came into the monastery with the river down below? Take all that money and throw it off the bridge. That'd be the best thing you could do with it. (laughs) The guy's jaw dropped open. You don't want it? No. You throw it away was really amazing to sit with somebody who just looked at people and said what he thought. (laughs) There was an English monk who came and ordained for a while, complained quite a bit, then he decided to try a Burmese monastery, didn't like that, came back again to the Thai Forest Monastery. Then he decided to go to England, see how it was there, didn't like it, disrobed, went to a Japanese monastery for a while, tried Zen, didn't like it, came back, took ordination again, was sitting there. Some people came to visit. They said, oh, you're back again. He was sitting there, some of the villagers. Ajahn Chah said, yeah, he seems to kind of come and go, you know, like the tide. <laughs> said, well, what's his problem? He said, I don't know, but it's kind of like he uh, put his monk's bag down in dog shit. <laughs> and then he carries it around with him, and he thinks all the monasteries he goes to smell bad. <laughs> He did it with a lot of humor. 
But he just told it like it was. And with that humor, he was always pointing to a truth that we know, that you can do it, that you can be free, that you are the Buddha, and that freedom is there in this moment, is here to be found. But that freedom only comes when we see what is true, when we face what is so just now. And sometimes the truth we have to face is that our marriage is terrible or that our work is all wrong. And it doesn't mean then that we have to leave it immediately, but it can't be healed, it can't be fixed, it can't be solved until we face how it actually is. Can we work with what is true openly and honestly with our heart open and our mind open? It means, as W.H. Auden said, to learn to love your crooked neighbor with your own crooked heart. (laughs) To see that what's difficult outside or inside, as it would appear, is really all in ourselves. It's not out there. It's all your own damn fault if you're any good, said Ernest Hemingway. It's not somebody else doing it to us. So spiritual life isn't about some ideal about how things are, but seeing them as they are. It's like Katagiri Roshi, who was diagnosed with cancer and gradually dying, his students around him. One day he said, you're all waiting to see how a Zen master's going to die, aren't you? And he said, this is how I'm going to die. Oh, I hate it. It's painful. I don't want to die. I don't want to die. He looked at them. That's how I might die. You you have some idea about how it's supposed to happen. Let go of the ideas of how it's supposed to be and see it as it is. One does not become enlightened by imagining figures of light, said Carl Jung, but by making the darkness conscious, by bringing light to what we have not seen. And this takes a greatness of being, a greatness of heart. My friend and teacher, Mahagosananda, who is the head of the Cambodian Buddhists, leads a peace march every year through Cambodia, through the Khmer Rouge territories, the worst places. It's grown now. At first it was some hundreds, and now it's thousands of people who walk. And people say, how do we make peace in a country where there has been so much sorrow and suffering and killing? And he answers so simply. He said, peace begins with oneself. Peace is made step by step. That's why we walk. We take one peaceful step, and then we take another. Soldiers, people will come out. put their guns down by the side of the road and bow as the monks walk by. I told you the story of this peacemaker priest who had been trained, Claude Thomas, in New York by Tetsugan Sensei. He was an American, black, Vietnam War veteran, went on the Cambodian Peace March. And he'd been given with his ordination this beautiful bell that he would ring as he walked for peace. One day he went up to one of the Cambodian soldiers who was standing there, Vietnamese soldiers, talked to him. He said, how are you sleeping? Just the question a vet knows how to ask someone else. Not well, nightmares, terrible. Talked about it a little bit. Then the soldier looked at him and saw this beautiful bell that he had. Said, "Um, I'd really love to have that bell. Clarence Thomas looked back at him and he said, I'll tell you what, I'll give it to you. I'll trade it to you for your gun. The man said, I can't. You know, I'm here on duty. My captain's over there. I can't give away my gun. Can't do it. Clarence Thomas looked at him again. He said, all right, I'll give you the bell for the bullets in your gun. 
So the man emptied out all the bullets of his chamber and handed them to Clarence Thomas, and he gave him the bell that was his ordination gift. There is a very deep power to truth when we rest in it in our hearts. It is the power that I've spoken of, of Mahagosananda, when we were in the Cambodian refugee camps and he opened the Buddhist monastery and 25,000 people came into the square and began to chant the chants that they hadn't heard for years. Their villages burned, their temples burned, a quarter of the population killed, so much destruction. And he began to chant the simple truth, hatred never ceases by hatred, but by love alone is healed. This is the ancient and eternal law. And he chanted it over and over, and people chanted with him as they sat there and wept. It was probably the only thing he could say to these people that was helpful, because it was a truth that was even bigger than their suffering. They had seen so much sorrow, and he said, yes, that's true, and yes, it does not end that way. So this is what we're asked to do as we sit in meditation or walk or live a spiritual life, to see what is true and live from that knowing in our hearts. I remember teaching with Stephen Levine, talking about the eternal law of change, how everything changes. Stephen asked in this one retreat, how many of you really believe you're going to die? And only about a third of the hands went up. It was true, I think. You know, one of the greatest wonders in the world, as it is in the Mahabharata or the Bhagavad Gita, Krishna's talking to Arjuna. What are the most amazing things in the world? Arjuna asks him, and Krishna says, the most amazing thing is to look and notice that people see those like themselves, dying all around them, and still believe it won't happen to them. It's <laughs> the story I'm looking for here. A very old nun who had tried out the new form of habit that was recently given her order, was discussing her funeral with the mother superior. I'd like to be buried in the old habit, she said. Of course, said the mother superior, if you'll be more comfortable in that. <laughs> it's true, you know. Look to your right and to your left as you sit here, or just glance for a moment. And in 20 or 30 years or less, at least one of those people will have died. They won't be here. In another 20 or 30, probably both of them will have, or perhaps the person who's looking. So what matters then when we see the truth? Long have you undergone sorrows, suffering, confusion, entanglement, long enough to turn away from these all, says the Buddha. What matters is the path that we choose. Does this path have a heart, as Don Juan asked. If it does, it is good. If it doesn't, it is of no use. I just came back from this week of being in Florida because my wife's father died a week ago. and We did the funeral and helped take care of her mother who's living alone for the first time in 81 years in her life. Cleaned out all the closets of his clothes and took them down to Goodwill and sorted through all the papers and talked to the lawyer and all of those things, you know. What do we possess, really? What do we own that we get to keep? What matters when life is as short as it is? 
So to see with the truthful heart that we have is to see in a radically new way. What brings joy? What do we most deeply want? Maybe in the end the things are so simple. To say to someone, I love you, may not need to say all those other words. To pay respects to another being. To bring the fulfillment or happiness not from grasping and accumulation, (coughs) but by the respect that we bring to each moment. Because that's how it is. We have just a moment and another and another. This quality of truthfulness is also sometimes called dhamma-vichaya, which means investigation into the dharmas. Looking at the stories we tell ourselves about this world and investigating who we really are in the midst of them. Who are you? Is the question. Where did you come from? There's a place in the writings of Castaneda where after years of struggle in these various trials that Don Juan puts him through, Carlos Castaneda begs Don Juan to finally tell him the answer, to tell him the truth. And Don Juan looks back at him and says, I could tell you the truth. I could tell you in a moment, but you wouldn't believe me. That's why I put you all through all these trials in the deserts and all these things, because you wouldn't believe me. You'd hear it, but you wouldn't believe it. Do you want to know the truth? You don't exist as a separate being. It's all a fiction of thought in our own minds. You are not separate from the rest of life, even though it feels separate. That's an illusion, a dream. As Kala Rinpoche says, you live in illusion and the appearance of things. They seem separate and solid. There is a reality, but you do not know this. When you understand it, you will realize you are nothing. And being nothing, you are everything. That is all. We own nothing. We're just the accountants in the firm. We have it for a little while, keep track of it, and it disappears. Even our own body. And in meditation, when we become still, we cultivate the quality of truthfulness and attention to see beyond that superficial level of being where everything seems separate. Because there's this relative level that confuses us, you know. Here I am and my name is Jack and I'm sitting here and talking about something or other, you know, and it feels very separate. But when we get still, it's as if the quality of attention itself is like a zoom lens that can open very wide or see very closely and microscopically layer after layer. When it opens wide, it's like the truth. A telescope shows us that there are a hundred billion galaxies, each with billions of stars. And it's quite amazing, you know. If our galaxy, we'll put it this way, our solar system with the sun and its planets all the way out to Pluto, if we took our solar system and made it the size of a baseball, and put it here in this room. This is our whole solar system, all the planets and the sun. How big would our single galaxy be, Milky Way galaxy? It would be as big as the entire North American continent. This is our solar system, these vast distances from planet to planet. One baseball in the middle of North America. That's one galaxy. And there aren't billions, there are hundreds of billions of them. The same thing can happen as we open our mind. 
we can open to a kind of space in which thoughts and images and all that is appears in that vast silent space without boundaries. Or we look closely with the microscopic lens in the other direction. If you look in, not only is there vast space out there, here's this baseball and this huge great spaces, but if you look inwardly, one atom, I think I remember from high school science class, if you take the nucleus of an atom, which turns out to be nothing but vibrations anyway, but if you take it and believe it to be solid for a moment and make it the size of a pea, blow it up millions of times so that you can see it, then its electron is the size of a dust mote and about a quarter of a mile down the road. So that means basically that there's nothing here, atomically speaking or star-like speaking or any other speaking, if you get still. It's here in a certain way, but only in that certain way. And when you sit very still and quietly, you feel a breath. At first it feels like a breath, and then it's a river of a hundred sensations. Or you eat a raisin, as we do in the eating meditation exercise. And at first it's a raisin, and then it's saliva and water and earth and air and flavors, and the whole world is in our mouth, dancing around with the tongue and showing all the elements that make up life. Or you feel a pain, and the pain is the word for it, but what's the truth? Vibration, tingling, throbbing, burning. All these different sensations changing. Or you become afraid, and you pay attention, and what is fear? It's a story we tell ourselves, thoughts, imagines, images. Fear is never about what's here. It's always about what's going to come next, isn't it? It's never this moment. It's always a story. And the more deeply that we can let go of our ideas about things and experience them just in a moment in meditation, they become like a stream, a river, Feelings, thoughts, perceptions, images, fears, stories, vibrations, pleasant and painful. One thing contains the next. Coming out of nowhere and disappearing. What happened to yesterday? It's gone. What happened to most of 1996? Disappeared, right? 95, the 90s so far. You know, what happened to the 80s or the 70s? Remember the 60s, the 50s? Gone. And they're all gone back to nothing. They appear, they do a little dance, and then it vanishes. All there is is this moment. And even this moment is just like this and then gone into a new one. So the Buddha saw that. He said, wow. This is like a river. I kept thinking it was solid and I had to hold on to things and build forts and accumulate stuff. And you can't. It's not how things are. So when we meditate, we see the truth of things. On this deep level, how everything changes and nothing can be grasped. Or maybe in the level of our feelings and wishes and hopes, all the stories we tell about how life should be. And there's the grief and the ambition and pain and fear. And at some point we begin to realize it's just the pain because life does have pain, or the pleasure because life has pleasure, or the fear because life has fear. It's that simple. We stop running away. James Baldwin says, I imagine one of the reasons people cling to their hates so stubbornly is because they sense that once hate is gone, they'll be forced to deal with a great deal of pain. So there's something courageous about stopping and just saying, let me see how things are. And how they are is the 10,000 joys and beauty 
and the 10,000 sorrows and sufferings. And they play praise and blame and gain and loss and pleasure and pain. Anyone not see that? To rest in that is to rest in the Tao. If you open yourself to the Tao, you are at one with the truth and you can embody it. If you open yourself to insight, you are at one with insight. You can use it completely. If you open yourself to loss, you are at one with loss and you can accept it completely. Open yourself to the way and trust your natural responses. Everything will fall into place. To remember these qualities of a Buddha is to rest in the heart, to discover that greatness of heart that is free in the changing circumstances of life, that gets its joy and happiness not from possessing or controlling or manipulating, but from the pleasure of being present in this moment, from the compassion, the respect, the beauty that we can offer to the world. Martin Luther King, I still believe that standing up for truth is the greatest thing in the world. This is the end of our life. The end of life is not to be happy. The end of life is not to achieve pleasure or avoid pain. The end of life is to live a life of truth and to do the will of the divine, come what may. What a way to live, to live from that place of truth. We all want to be happy. We don't want to suffer. It's true. And the practice of compassion, which we might learn, is to see the sufferings of another as our own. They are all someone's children. No one wants to suffer. Life is fleeting. What matters in this? From the Diamond Sutra. This existence of ours is as transient as autumn clouds. To watch the birth and death of beings is like looking at the movements of a dance. A lifetime It's like a flash of lightning in the sky, a dream, an echo, a rainbow, rushing by like a torrent down a steep mountain. It happens quickly. So what matters when we see that this is true? What would you wish your legacy to be? To rest in the truth, to see the world as it is, is to be wise. To offer that wisdom and compassion to others. To allow silence and truth. And let that spirit of knowing be our gift to others. It's so amazing, you know, I've done hospice work in different situations been with other people as well around those who've been ill or dying. And it's becoming a little more common in our culture, the wisdom of being with people as they die with some sense of graciousness and lack of fear. But it's still in certain situations you can go in and people are so frightened by the truth. And all that matters really is that one person come in and sit down and say, it's okay. It's really all they want is somebody to sit there and say, it's all right, this is natural, this too is fine, it's, it's going to be all right. Our heart and our spirit becomes our gift to the world. Like the monastery of Wat Tumkaborg, which I've spoken of, which was the greatest, still is, center for the treatment of drug addiction in Southeast Asia run by this old abbot who not only took the 227 vows of a monk but added 10 more 
practices of truth to it, which included the truth, telling the truth with every word he spoke, and not taking a ride, even though other monks could ride in cars or go places. He walked anywhere he wanted to go. Even if it was Bangkok, he'd walk the 150 miles there and 150 miles back or whatever it was. He said, so that when I got there, I knew where I was and then I could speak what I had to say. It's a different world, isn't it? Imagine that. And people would come in there who'd been involved in every kind of addiction and deception. And he would sit there and say, you can tell the truth. You can face the truth. It is possible. You can rest your life in this truth. Such a spirit. Tell the truth again and again. C.S. Lewis wrote, A man can no more diminish God's glory by refusing to honor it than a lunatic can put out the sun by scribbling darkness on the walls of his cell. It's not the words about things, but the suchness of them. They are the way they are. And if we can face pain and loss and beauty and love equally with respect, with presence, if we can sit with the truth of a Buddha, we become a gift to the world. In the practice of compassion, one takes in with a breath the sorrows of others and breathes out kindness or compassion. I remember being with this Lama and somebody said, but what if people are really sick? What if it's a terrible situation? And the Lama said, well, picture someone you love the most and imagine them in that terrible situation. Wouldn't you want to help them? Maybe they're all your children. And maybe, he said, if you could take the pain of the world, you would do it. If you could take the pain of the world in your heart and transform it, who among us would not do it? This is the truth that the Buddha discovered, that we're not who we think we are. Alan Watts called it the taboo against knowing who you are. Our worst fear is not that we are inadequate. This is from Nelson Mandela's acceptance speech. Our deepest fear is that we are powerful beyond measure. It is our light, not our darkness, that most frightens us. We ask ourselves, who am I to be brilliant, talented, fabulous? Actually, who are you not to be? You are a child of God, and your playing small doesn't serve the world. There's nothing enlightened about shrinking so that other people won't feel insecure around you. We were born to make manifest the glory of the divine within us, it is not just in some of us, it is in everyone. And as we let our own light shine, we unconsciously give other people permission to do the same. We're not asked to do very much in this teaching or to say very much Sometimes the best thing we can say is nothing. Sometimes it's simply our presence, our heart, our stillness that matters, not our words or opinions. But to rest in that place of the Buddha in us as we sit, to sit under the tree of enlightenment and to get up into this world and offer that great heart of compassion that capacity for freedom that is our birthright, that is here in any moment. For there is nothing to fear when we look deeply. That's just a story. Mahatma Gandhi, let my first act every morning be this resolve. I shall fear nothing and no one on earth. I shall fear only God. I shall not bear ill will toward anyone. I shall not submit to injustice from anyone, but conquer untruth by truth. And in resisting untruth, I shall put up with all suffering and bring freedom to all.
one of the last things to say is how important it is when we speak the truth to ourselves and to others that it be done with compassion or mercy. Otherwise, it becomes a kind of brutal honesty. We need that kindness for ourselves or we won't open. And we need it among human beings one to another. I guess I will end with this reading from Anne Frank. She says, I believe my ideals because in spite of everything, I still believe that people are really good at heart. I simply can't build up my hopes on a foundation consisting of confusion, misery, and death. I can feel the suffering of millions, yes. And yet if I look up into the heavens, I think that it will come right, that this cruelty too in the end will cease, and that peace and tranquility will again return in its season to the earth. Let's sit for a moment. As you sit, allow yourself to rest in the suchness of this moment, in what is true, this breath, these feelings, these thoughts. And the great space of knowing, the knowing heart, that can allow it all to rise and pass like the change of seasons, resting in compassion. And let yourself listen to what is true, listening inwardly with the heart. What truth needs to be told about this body, your own body? And what truth needs to be told about your heart, you can know. And what truth do we need to know about those around us to see and awaken to? Let yourself hold those truths in compassion. Just these two simple things. To see what is true, to hold it in compassion. In that you find freedom. A couple of brief announcements and a chant to end. Next week, um, I won't be giving the Monday night talk. 
Instead, because it's right before Thanksgiving, we've invited the San Quentin Prison Choir to come and sing for us. We'll talk a little bit prior to it about song and chanting and devotional practice in Buddhism and in the Christian tradition as well. They'll talk to you, these guys. Um, and then they'll sing gospel and whatever else they sing. Um, and with that, a couple of things. There's a bookcase in the back of the room over there toward the left where we're collecting books for the Insight Prison Project. And a whole group of people are writing letters and corresponding to the thousands and thousands of people who are in prison, um, offering spiritual materials for their inner work at that time. So if you can, and you have good books that you would want if you were in prison, bring them and put them on the shelf. Also bring some money because it will be a fundraiser for the Insight Prison Project so we have money to send all these things throughout the year. And for the San Quentin Prison's Choir, Prison Choir, these are guys who've, who are now out of San Quentin and living in the community and it's part of the way that they make their living. And um, also they have a prison ministry to bring teachings and things back into the, those who are inside. Um, see what other announcements. Could I please include in the prayer Janet Silva, who is sick and in the hospital in Kaiser and sits in Spirit Rock? Yes. And for those of you who know her, you probably do know, I was just told today that a dear friend who lives in San Geronimo Valley, Carol Meese, um, died yesterday. Um, Today there were 250,000 births on this earth and 200,000 deaths this day. I'm glad to be with you tonight. It feels helpful to me to come and just sit and talk about the Dharma every week, especially jetting off to Florida and doing all the things. It's kind of ironic that when something happens like uh, that, where you have to go somewhere for a funeral and all the various things, that there really isn't much time to reflect. You're busy doing all those things. Um, and then in some ways it comes more alive afterward when you can just sit for a moment and be still and listen when I can. So I'm grateful for this. Um, and I'm grateful that we can remind each other of this place of peacefulness and understanding. So let's end with a very simple chant, which is the word namo, which means I bow to or I pay respects to. And as we chant it, we'll chant it nine times. You can imagine as you sing it the respects to what is true in yourself, in the world around, to one another. Namo in that place of kindness and peace
to see what is true and speak of it with compassion this week. And may our loving kindness extend to Janet Silva, to Carol Meese, and to all others around us near and far. Have a good week. Thank you. Take time to be quiet once in a while. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.